Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm sitting here with my colleague Jasper Murison Bowie. Hi, Barney. Hi, Jasper. We're not here with our colleague Mark Pringle, who is sunning himself on a beach in Crete. And of course, it's much missed, particularly his inimitable laugh, which perhaps we'll try and duplicate it. We've done that gag already. Should we just do it again? Just make it a running one. No, we'll actually stick his own laugh in at some point, won't we? So, anyway, you are missed, Mark, greatly. I hope you're having fun. Um, hope you're having a miserable time. Yes, actually. Just because I'm let's jealous. Let's get honest. Yeah. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it's pouring Although it's rain. sunny today here in London, which is it quite is nice. It is. Quite muggy, quite sunny. Fascinating, I'm sure, to any listeners who don't live in London. It's Thursday. It's sort of midday, isn't it? About that. And this is where we find ourselves in a slightly <laughs> muggy, sunny <laughs> London without Mark Pringle. Anyway, to matters at hand, <laughs> we're going to be talking about everything that's new on Rock's Back Pages, including the free features. Um, and they are Ricky Lee Jones and the late Harry Doherty. Ricky Lee... He's going to release a new album in a week or so. It's a covers album called Kicks. Covers of what, man? Well, I covers of She's done a few covers albums now. Okay. I couldn't tell you whether this is the sort of third or the fourth. Uh-huh. And it may be that she's run out of kind of original <laughs> ideas, but she's an interesting interpreter. Have you listened at all to Ricky Lee? I can't say that I have, although when we talked about this yesterday, you said I'd probably like her, so perhaps I should. I think you should. Okay, well, I, I will. like some stuff. Yeah, having read a few pieces about her now, I think it'd be interested to hear certainly what she has to say and what sound it is, because you kind of described it as sort of slightly jazzy. Definitely yeah. jazzy, you know. I mean, you must know Chucky's in Love. I'm Everybody sure I've heard knows it. I'm Chucky's sure in it, Love. Yeah. That was her hugest hit. It was a massive hit, and I think it caught even her by surprise because she was like, really was almost like an overnight yeah. success. The first of the three pieces about Ricky Lee, it doesn't even mention Chucky's in Love, which uh, one of the hardest things to do online is to find out when. If a song went to number one, yeah. or what it went to, to find out exactly when it went to number one. I'm going huh. go to the Billboard site. Yeah. I guess you could find out. But so I'm thinking that this piece by Mick Farron in NME in 1979 was actually written before Chucky's In Love even got oh, to really? number four. Yeah. So it's kind of Mickey Farron, who was an English writer living in LA at the time, talking to this Warner Brothers artiste and kind of placing her in the context of something that he knew very well which is kind of beat literature and he mentions both Ricky Lee and her boyfriend Tom Waits in the context of sort of Damon Runyon you know 40s jazz nostalgia a world where Nick the Greek slips through the shadows and Jack Kerouac could show up at any moment in a beat up Hudson and that's very much the kind of shtick that Ricky Lee and to a degree Tom Waits her beau were they were together for for a while right they were and they were sort of one of you know pop's great couples in some ways power couple <laughs> well I, I i don't know power couple doesn't feel right just but in hindsight one might argue that they were they were living the life that they were singing sure. about and he yeah. was living at the tropicana motel 
the almost infamous Motown West Hollywood. And, you know, his little kind of bungalow was a complete kind of wreck. You could barely even get in the door for all the sort of albums and books and paraphernalia around. But they run around town sort of kind of Living wreaking the, havoc. Sure, You know, yeah. she is the girl on the cover of Blue Valentine, his 1978 album. So she wasn't even signed at that point. Really? Okay. She was this kind of gangster's mole type character. <laughs> anyway, so she was signed by Warner Brothers on the basis of the fact that two or three people had done songs she'd written. Okay. Um, Lowell George did a song of hers called Easy Money. And she was given like a pretty big budget to make this first album. And the cream Always of nice. the kind of Warner Brothers session guys. And Chucky's In Love was a huge hit. I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge fan of hers, I have to say. Although it's based mainly on the records she made at the turn of that decade. So the two other pieces reference this, uh, her second album, Pirates, which for me is just one of the greatest records ever made. Okay, I think wow. it's an extraordinary... All it's right. a kind of song suite about, loosely about, mainly about her breakup with Tom Waits, which was really devastating for her. She had problems anyway, Ricky Lee. She had a pretty traumatic and itinerant childhood. And so by the time she was with Waits, she was behind his back, so dabbling in heroin. Yeah. Um, when he broke up with her, um, she really kind of hit. Yeah, one of the things I read in, in one of the, and I think in the retrospective piece, which is the third piece that we've yeah. got, and she talks about that whole drug problem a bit more and kind of how she went from taking heroin, as you were just saying, to taking coke and that not really going very well for her and it doesn't, she feels it doesn't agree with her and then she ends up in hospital and so it's obviously she had a she troubled really, sort of 80s She had, time. I mean, I know someone who interviewed her around that time in London and... The interview was on kind of, uh, let's say, the ninth floor of a hotel. And she was seeing people outside the window. And he realized oh, she was yeah. in trouble. Yeah. There's no one outside the window. <laughs> I don't think anyone's Not cleaning the, the windows no. today. So she did kind of lose the plot. And I think it had something to do with the breakup from Waits. She was really devastated yeah. when he left her. And he may have left her partly because of her drug problems that she just couldn't. She, sure. He was pretty wild. He was an alcoholic at that point. Yeah. But she was too wild even for him. Mm. I think Pirates is, is pretty extraordinary. I really like the Bob Mayer piece. Yeah, it's a really nice. It gave me a super. I mean, for someone that. Obviously, I haven't really listened to her. I'd heard her name, but mm. I'd not really taken any time to mm. find out who she is. It's a really great piece as an introduction and kind of give a sense of what she did and why and how. It's a good piece from that perspective as well. It's really interesting when she talks about... Because she won, like, or at least she was nominated for five Grammys on the, that first album. It was one of those, you know, every so often an artist is launched by a major label, like a Nora Jones or something, yeah. and they're just sort of instantly just huge. huge. And and in some ways, that's a hard thing to recover from, and I think it was for yeah, her. She had this additional point. problem that Waits had, in a sense, been not struggling. He was on a major mm. label, but he, you know, he wasn't, he'd never been nominated no. for a Grammy. Suddenly, it's a bit Star is Born, and she's nominated for five Grammys. She won at least one of them. And 
she talks about how difficult that was for him and I suspect I suspect it was really difficult yeah. however you know when you fast forward obviously Tom Waits is on a kind of cult level a still a pretty giant yeah. figure in, in in musical culture now Ricky Lee's career is slightly tailed off. I'm interested in talking to you about her part because I know that you are, you know, a you're a, you're a musician. You 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 perform jazz. You play jazz. You're very big on jazz, and you know your jazz. The second of the three pieces, at least chronologically, is an interview by Richard Cook, also for Enemy. And I remember when this came out because I was at the Enemy, and most of it's kind of like Ricky Lee Jones. Now Richard was a great jazz writer, one of the great yeah, jazz no, writers, is, and it's very interesting that he's he asks her about jazz, and and he says, "So why are you using a rock presentation for music that has like jazz allegiances?" You know, in other words, why is Ricky Lee not presenting herself yeah. as a sort of pure jazz artist? And she says, "Well, you know, jazz, and this is 1983. Jazz is very closed." It's a one-lane road. Today, it's very sterile and self-indulgent for, music- for musicians. You close off things immediately with a jazz format. I mean, not That's something that Richard would have would have um, appreciated hearing since he wrote a lot about jazz. But I think that's very interesting, especially at that time when we were really starting to get into jazz fusion and there is a lot of... And I think possibly reading between the lines slightly here is jazz was and is very male. And I think if you want to be an active jazz musician who happens to be a woman, it's a lot more difficult. And I think that might be what she's getting at with the closeness of it in part. And I think also there has been in the past a sort of snobbery about jazz and from jazz musicians as it being kind of a pure art form. You don't, you don't want to kind of dabble in pop and stuff. It's, it's, not, it's not the done thing to be really successful or popular, I think. So that, that might be... It sort of makes sense, yeah, what she's it, saying. Yeah, it does it? make sense to me. And it's very interesting as well, because I think now we're at a point where jazz having been kind of the underdog for a good few years in the sense that there wasn't much popular jazz in the 80s and 90s in some senses it's now has totally opened itself up and is taking a lot from hip-hop is taking a lot from funk is taking a lot from r&b absolutely it's and really it's, evolved it's really then. really the polar opposite of what she's describing although i don't think she's wrong to describe it as such when she does so well, that's really helpful, and that and that makes sense. I mean, I get. I mean, look on a on a sort of pragmatic level. If she had been presented by Warner Brothers, and she had great mentors there like Lenny Warrenker and Russ Titleman, they really put all their guns behind her. If they had literally presented her as a pure jazz artist, uh, she probably would never have had a huge hit yeah, with Chucky. Possibly in not. Love, no, you know, or been on Saturday Night Live on the cover of Rolling Stone and all of that stuff. It's you not know. what one hears about for jazz singers really not at that time anyway exactly exactly so that's ricky lee she's a sort of fascinating slightly troubled eccentric singer songwriter i think she deserves to be sort of put in that laura nero kind of laura nero was a huge yep. influence on her and she went i was writing a piece about laura nero once and i emailed ricky to ask if she would if i could interview her mm-hmm. And instead, she just sent me like an e- like an incredibly long email all about Laura wow. Nero, which is the most it was the most fantastic and poetic stuff that anyone could, could say about Laura Nero. And oh, I was really appreciative of that. Such a great yeah, thing it was to a do. generous generous yeah, thing to do. I always wish her all the best. The album kicks. It's got a, <laughs> it's a bizarre collection of covers. 
there's Mac the Knife, which you could sort of get. But then there's also a cover of Bad Company by Bad Company. Wow. What? You know, which I, I haven't heard. I don't think it's available yet. But so it's, this comes out next a, week. Okay, so it's I'll have coming to, out I'll June 7th. Catch up on her existing music and then yeah, explore I think that so. with some curiosity because Bad Company's Bad Company is... Not um, what I expected you to say there. There are a lot of things no, that you could no, have said. No, I mean, she's always kind of thrown in these very sort of left-field choices. But there we go. Ricky Lee Jones, an American original. Moving on to the featured writer of the week, Harry Doherty, I mentioned earlier. Now, Harry, very sad when he passed away five years ago. He was a great friend to Rock's Back Pages and was one of those 70s melody maker writers who were writing about all the acts that sort of literally overnight got kind of jettisoned by punk rock. (laughs) Uh, But he remained loyal to these acts and later wrote books or co-wrote books about Queen, presciently in some ways, and Thin Lizzy. It's just a lovely Irishman. I've picked a Rory yeah, Gallagher piece because, partly because sure, we've got we the have audio the Rory Gallagher up. audio. But the biggest of... I really like this Queen piece. <laughs> Queen piece. Well, I know you're a Queen fan. Yeah, I've, yeah I think Queen... You, you told me you, you were sort of raised on... What which Queen was so it you I, for some reason, News of the World. News of the World is the yeah. album that I had on CD for my Walkman when I was a kid. I can't have been older than about yeah. nine or ten when I bought it with yeah. my pocket money at one of those mega music stores in Germany. And I listened to it obsessively. I thought it was great. I don't know. Weirdly, the two biggest tracks of that album are We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions, which are pretty much dud tracks as far as I'm concerned. I I think they're horribly overplayed and kind of tedious. I agree. But the rest of the album is just brilliant. It's hard rock. There's some jazz. There's there's all sorts of stuff going on there. And I think think they're great. So, yeah. Well, so Freddie's actually on tour with Queen and Thin Lizzy on the east coast of America in a sort of viciously cold winter of late 76 going into early 77. It's a pretty wild combo of Thin Lizzy and the Queen on the same tour. It's like Yeah, well, there's talk in the piece about you know, why and, and Queen thought that Lizzy would challenge them to yeah. some extent. And apparently and they really loved one particular Thin Lizzy album, I can't remember which, but they used to have it. I think that during some photo shoot, they requested it was played in the background to kind of keep them relaxed kind of thing. I think that's a cool Well, I mean, aside. in a way, it was a generous kind of choice because Thin Lizzy were a great live band. So, you know, you know what these huge bands are like or were yeah. like. They don't really want, they don't want a support act that, that's in any way going to blow them off the stage, as the cliche used to be. Um, there's some funny things in this, in this piece, and one of them is, of course, inevitably Freddie. Mainly, Harry is talking to Brian May and Roger Taylor, and Freddie apparently has already decided he's not going to do interviews. He says he's playing the star card to the max. It's strange to see at airports that Freddie doesn't mingle with the rest of the band, who mingle with Lizzie. Freddie will be sat at another part of the lounge, accompanied by his friendly neighbourhood masseur and other friends. (laughs) And true to his adorable camp nature... He's not doing interviews, as he explained to me at one after-show party. Eyeing me from the other side of the room, he sauntered over, gave my bum a gentle pat and whispered, Harry, darling, I'm so sorry about the interview, but I'm just not giving them any more. No exceptions. (laughs) 
That's wonderful. Isn't that oh, just it's great? It's just peak Freddy, it really is peak It Freddy. is peak Freddy. And what I'm reminded of looking back at these dirty pieces is I remember him contacting us and saying, I've got a bunch of pieces, and I'd actually like to write either like little intros or postscripts uh-huh. to them. So he talks here about the postscript to this is that after this interview came out in Melody Maker, he went to see Elton John at the Rainbow Theatre and saw Brian May and Roger Taylor in the audience. So he went up to say hello. Apparently Brian May had seen the piece and wasn't best pleased. Really? And he said in a rather petulant fashion, Nobody blows us off in Boston. Boston is our town. Nobody blows us off, and Thin Lizzy didn't. <laughs> Hilarious. And wow, the other part that's of the, yeah. so sensitive. <laughs> well, he does, it really is. And he even says, you weren't even there. You left with Lizzie before we came on, which Harry says wasn't true. So, um, but I do bed. love that that's something that we can get on RBP is these little postscripts or intros and that kind of thing. Absolutely. I just think it's such a great addition to particularly when it's a historical piece is to get that reflection from exactly it makes my job worth all the anguish that (laughs) we go through (laughs) the last of harry's pieces and it also comes with well this comes with a little prologue it's an interview with he was very early on an early champion of kate bush for whatever reason melody maker sent him to interview kate bush at a time when i guess some people might have thought that she was just going to be a one-hit wonder with wuthering heights you know so she goes early she's like 19 she's 19 and he goes to the bush family home which is was in like Kent or Sussex or somewhere and in the prologue he says I remember this interview with massive warmth I knew me and Kate were obviously getting along because this was done at the family house and the mammy lovely Irish term the mammy was making us tea Kate's lovely adorable mammy was Irish and the house exuded the glow that only happy Irish families can give it's a great interview in some ways I mean 19-year-olds are going to talk in rather bland cliches at the best of times. But Kate does talk. She addresses things like the whole marketing of her as a sex symbol, that she says she'd been to EMI's promotion department to ask that the sex symbol angle wasn't overplayed. Fair play. And says that the sex symbol thing didn't even occur to me until I noticed it kept coming up in interviews. But she also, I mean, she says, interestingly, when I'm at the piano writing a song, I like to think I'm a man, not physically, but in the areas that they explore. Rock and roll and punk, you know, they're both really male music. And I'm not sure I understand that yet, but I'm really trying. When I'm at the piano, I hate to think that I'm a female because I automatically get a preconception. Every female you see at the piano is either... Lindsay DePaul or Carol King, that lot. And that sort of stuff is very sweet and lyrical, but it doesn't push it on you. And most male music really lays it on you. It's like an interrogation. That's really interesting. It's, it's especially interesting given another piece that I want to talk about later on, which is Christine and the Queens. But I think that's a fascinating thing to say, mm. and to say at that time as well, is, I don't know, I think that... Because you, often people talk about inhabiting certain personas or perspectives in order to write but Mm. that's a very sort of blanket statement about i don't want to access that in my writing and i think possibly it's something to do with the time as well where there were more preconceptions about who you could be as a singer songwriter as a woman absolutely so i think that's a that's a fascinating i do think it is interesting to think of this extraordinarily attractive girl sitting at the piano and sort of consciously saying well i am not going to be Lindsay DePaul here i sure. don't know what i'm going to be but i'm going to sort of not inhabit that persona yeah and i think I, there's no doubt that kate bush 
did an extraordinary job of not playing up to kind no. of certainly male and preconceptions. Not, and of, not pigeonholing herself yeah. either, and I think that's probably why she managed, because... I mean, I think she's a genius. I really do. I think the, the music she went on to make particular. I mean, I never, curiously never really loved Wuthering Heights and, and thought this is like a novelty act. Right, right. But then I started to hear the stuff on, well, certainly the kick inside, I think, was, yeah, was, was, was you sort of thought, oh, wow, this yeah. girl can write extraordinary songs sure. and also arrange them in really novel and And they do exactly ways. what she says that she's setting out to do, which is be there and kind of kick you in the face kind of thing it's completely it's they're very much in front of you and they make you pay attention to them which I absolutely think is what makes Absol- it exciting so i mentioned that there's a Rory Gallagher piece from 76. And it's really Harry talking to Rory about... You've got to remember that Rory Gallagher, 1971, he was Melody Maker's top musician of the year. Polling really? above Eric Clapton, who was obviously Bloody a big hell. influence on him. He says in the piece, you know, he talks about kind of just his love of, sort of no-frills, gimmick-free, like blues rock, really. And he says the Irish are usually a bit cynical about gimmicks and stuff. You can see there's a theme here, Irishness. Yeah. And so forth. <laughs> Harry Dozy, Rory Gallagher, Kate Bush's family. None of this was planned, I hasten to add. But, I mean, why don't we segue into the audio interview? Yeah, I think that's a neat This isn't segue. Harry talking to Rory, but it is Cliff White. And it's a few years later in 78, well. I think, yeah. isn't it? So let's just hear a little clip from Rory. live with the other two guys in the studio always. Yes. That's great. You don't go in for too many layers of... No. I, 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 time's gone by, I've actually done live lead guitar, live vocal, and then dubbed on rhythm guitar. But this this time around, and the last couple of albums, I've realised that that's strictly a fantasy about the 50s. I mean, I still try and go for a live vocal and a live lead guitar. And as often as not, I get the live lead come rhythm and stick the vocal on later um, yeah. and then stick a bit of a rhythm depending on the song but I'm not I used to be sort of adamant about doing live vocals I don't know why I think I used to feel uncomfortable without a guitar so that's Rory talking about recording live in the studio you know what which parts he wants to perform live and how he's kind of shifted that over the course of his recording career and how he initially was kind of hesitant to sing without a guitar in his hand and I think that's actually quite a common thing for musicians guitarists who sing as well to say is that they don't feel comfortable just singing but so he's, he's talking about that and just his approach to recording live Absolutely. So the reason we're running this audio interview with Rory Gallagher is there's a new blues-oriented album of Gallagher tracks that's about to come out. And Rory Gallagher was one of a number, a large number of sort of white blues rock guitar players that came up in the wake of, you know, Eric Clapton and Peter Green and numerous others. And I remember 
you know, being at school and particularly, so this was like 72, 73. I remember one of my friends had Live in Europe, which had come out in 72. And, and I remember sort of listening to it and thinking, this is pretty hot guitar playing. Sure. I now listen back and think, yeah, he was a good guitar good, player. Good guitar player. But but not an extraordinary guitar and player. And pretty derivative overall. Derivative and, and, and of course not a great singer. Now like Jimi Hendrix wasn't a great singer but it didn't matter because he was a genius. Yes. And Roy Gallagher isn't a genius. genius. He's a sort of he's kind of, you know, it's bar and blues. It's not much more than that. No. I mean, I think he comes over rather charmingly yeah, he comes in over, the I mean, interview. He, he seems like a nice enough chat, really. I mean, he's 78, so seven years after he was number one in, was it the NME that he said? Or no, Melody Yeah, Maker. 71 Melody Maker, top, international top musician yeah. of the year. So he's, he's a bit on the wane after that in 78, and he talks about having problems with recording his album that he was trying to do and having to go back and That's do right, it again. That's right, photo finished. They had to just start again. They had to start again, and, yep. and he started recording it in London, but kept getting stuck in rush hour traffic, and yep. they just moved the whole operation to recording it in Cologne, which was interesting to me That's as a right. personal note. But yeah, just sort of problems with the He broke his thumb by trapping in a taxi door. Mm. It's sort of like things weren't quite going yeah. his way, really, I yeah. think. But... He's got a sense of humour about himself, at least. Yeah, he seems rather charming to me, and I could listen to that accent all day. I think oh, yeah. it's so so lovely. And, you know, he just sounds like a gentle, warm, friendly guy. Now, you know, I'm not sure that he ended his life in quite that gentle, friendly no. state. I mean, he died in 95, complications following a liver transplant. I think he had an alcohol problem. Yeah. That's certainly not evident at all in the guy that you listen to in this no. interview. I don't know really what to think. He's not someone I've listened to very often. I thought Taste, the band, the power trio that he came out of were were quite an interesting band mm. played the Isle of Wight did really well there broke up Rory went solo I mean it's he, it's he kind did, of generic blues rock he played with a few sort. interesting people yeah. I mean like the clip we're going to run at the end of the episode is a, a really interesting clip where he talks about Jerry Lewis and a really interesting perspective that he provides on Jerry Lewis. That's absolutely right. And he talks interestingly about Bo Diddley in the piece. There's a conversation about, well, Chuck Berry always gets all the plaudits as the great. Yeah. He uses the phrase, the folk poet, which has become kind of received wisdom now. But he says, well, I think, you know, Bo Diddley, in his way, was just a, as great a songwriter, yeah. you know. So it was nice to hear that. Shall we have a look at what's new then in the archive? Let's, Jasper. Hurrah. So, even in his absence, Mark has very helpfully, having obviously loaded all the stuff up to 1999... He's nothing if not thoughtful. Yeah, absolutely. He's given us some highlights that he picked out from some of his pieces, and the first of those is a really funny Paul McCartney to June Harris in Disc magazine in 1963, and Paul's talking to June saying fun things like we'll just have to be our crackpot selves we'll look all English play Beatles material and sing with Liverpool accents well this of course is just in response before to they're about, about to, to go, go to tour. America yeah. and that is really interesting to hear because of course that's exactly what they did they just turned on the sort of provincial English charm yeah. didn't attempt in any way to Americanise themselves no. and of course it just went down a storm went, yeah, went, you know um, so it's really really interesting to, to hear that just on the eve of this, of this like massive event yeah, that's about tour, to occur, and it, and it, it launched them as 
being the, the biggest mm. act in America just fell the absolutely world. fell in love with them, even when they couldn't understand their cute <laughs> Liverpoolian accents. Oh, it's so cute. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's a nice quote also, isn't there, from John Lennon yeah. there about anticipating A Hard Day's Night, the film. To me, our most important move next year will be the film. So that's already in the works. I don't want to appear in anything rubbishy, which might make good box office, but won't do anything for us. Well, so they're already really taking quite seriously this idea that this has to be... It can't just be a bit of kind of fluff, like no. an Elvis movie or a no. surf movie. It's got to be intelligent. They want to they do something good. They want to be artists. So, and they know. did. My God. Sure. I mean, Hard Day's Night is, you know, they got Richard Lester in, a kind of proven film director, and made one of the great pop films, yeah. you know. So, again, it's really interesting just to sort of the foresight, the planning, yeah. the nows. And it's how they're conscious of what they want to do and what they want to achieve, and I think they, they pulled it off at that time very, very well. Absolutely. So, it makes a nice segue to the next piece we're going to talk about, which is Pete Townsend talking to John Mendelssohn, although... John apparently claims he didn't write this piece. So where did it come from? We don't know. It's the LA Free Press in 1970. Or he's just forgotten. That or he's he just did forgotten. This piece. But, but stranger things have happened. I've had pieces <laughs> that have been credited to other people, yeah, you know, yeah. or, and vice versa. And Pete Townsend, in contrast to what we just heard, every time the Beatles put out a ballad, I spewed. I still can't forgive them for things like yesterday, which turns me off to this day. <laughs> 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 Yeah, uh, songs like yesterday do divide people, don't they? I mean, you know, Townsend couldn't have written a, a, a sort of pretty no, ballad like that no. if you paid him a million uh, pounds. He could not have done, and he claims it's necessary for us to be violent. It's our way of compensating for the fact that we're not Tarzan and don't have 12-inch cocks. Oh, we were doing so well. We were doing so well, we're but so had to have... Well. I mean, it really... that that is That is Pete Townsend, I guess. Yes, Pete Townsend, a very different human being from Paul McCartney. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, you know, the Beatles, the Stones and the Who were the three great and very competitive Absolutely. 60s very competitive, bands. Which is... uh, so it's it's amusing to hear Townsend kind of dissing yesterday. It's always nice to get sense. that kind of... Exactly. Yeah. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Next up... Van Halen's David Lee Roth to Jim Sullivan in the Boston Globe in 1980. And there are some great quotes in this. It's just David Lee Roth going, going, going. Excess means happiness to my way of thinking. I've always dealt in excess. Look, you want to do an interview with my parents? (laughs) (laughs) This is folk music delivered at high impact overkill. (laughs) I love this as well. This is great. I have all our reviews divided up into good bad and worse and I find that the bad reviews are a lot more fun to read and a lot more colourful adjective wise well that's music to ours isn't it yeah um, we because like because not everyone would, would be quite so sort of generous and magnanimous when it comes to bad reviews we do love David Lee Roth here we always did I mean I was a huge Van Halen fan but particularly a fan of his as a front man because because he just took the piss out of the whole thing he yeah, was like absolutely. a cartoon of a rock absolutely. god absolutely and I love that. And certainly one of the most articulate and amusing, witty interviewees you just... could ever hope to find. Uh, a real fan of music, really knew his stuff. I mean, he just gave great quote. Yeah, he really did. Just 
a brilliant showman and a great character, yeah. I think. You want to s- know how far I've come in the last three years? About 12 feet from the audience to the stage. That's <laughs> it, man. Yeah. And that totally speaks to what you're saying about him being knowledgeable about rock music and sort of... Totally. ...understanding how to caricature the rock superstar. Because and was able not to buy into the hype, you know? Yeah. I mean, he didn't... He knew he wasn't this absurd rock god that he presented on the stage. Sure. I mean, you know, he could go back to the dressing room. I mean, look, I'm sure he was up to all the same sort of tricks everyone yeah. was doing. But he was able to go home and remember that he was actually just uh, a, a nice Jewish guy called David Lee Roth. You know, <laughs> as, as, uh, you know as opposed to, like, I don't know, um, like Axl Rose sure. or, or, or someone like that, really, really sort of thinking that they were that important. The next piece here that Mark picked out was, we're just on pass on, this is Johnny Cash talking to Joel Selvin of the San Francisco Chronicle in 1994. So this is just when the first American Recordings albums come out with, with Rick Rubin. And Johnny has, in a sense, been brought in from the cold by Rick, signed to the American Recordings label. Johnny says, except for some stations that play the classics now and again, it's been a long time, 10 years or more, since they really played one of my records. Yeah. You know, and this is one of the giants of country music, and he could not catch a break on country no. radio. No. Nashville just you know, rejected him, spurned him, mm. as, a, as a kind of has-been. And, okay, he wasn't in the, the greatest shape, Johnny, through that period. But... I think some of the younger guns who were coming through, people like Dwight Yoakam, were, were really up in arms about the short shrift that he was getting from Nashville. And that it took this guy, Rick Rubin, yeah. most famous for like the Beastie Boys yeah. and Slayer and stuff like that, to say, this is an American giant yeah. and we're going to do something we're different. Do something, him. yeah. And, and that, American that recordings I mean, was did, very it did, different. It did work as well. It, it worked a treat, you know, within a couple of years. You know, Johnny was playing, or not even that long. I remember that you know Johnny Cash was playing like the Viper Room in LA, and all these movie stars and, yeah. and hot models were coming to see him. I mean, he was the he was like the sort of the flavor of the month, and and it was suddenly like, my God, you know, Johnny Cash is like he's like he's, back. he's like one of the yeah. if there was a Mount Rushmore of sort of country <laughs> music, he'd be the main guy. Yeah. In and he did a number of, as you know, a number of albums with Rick Rubin and made some really extraordinary sort of stark Americana music. Mm, really nice perspective to have that article from exactly that time when that's about to happen. Exactly, great. exactly. Next uh, up, Friend or Phobic, Stephen Wells and the NME. This is a, this is a really interesting piece. It it's swells on his polemic again, mm, which is great, yeah. great to read. Um, a terrific polemic. The fact is that 90% of Guns N' Roses' image and the image of almost all American metal bands is taken from gay clubs through the Rolling Stones through the New York Dolls. David Johansson once said, I'm trisexual, I'll try anything. Axl Rose, by comparison, is a flake, a wimp, and a gutless coward. Wow. Well, do you know, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you know, whether you kind of loved Guns N' Roses or not, the homophobia that people like Axel exhibited was and remains profoundly distasteful. Yeah. Um, and, and there's um, this great, there's another great thing about homophobia and rap. 
where he says white liberals defend raps homophobes by claiming that it's all part of some mysterious black culture and that whites have no right to criticise. Tell that to Frankie Knuckles, tell me Sylvester was a honky, and tell Donna Summer, a woman who's made millions out of gays, that it doesn't become her to talk about AIDS as a plague from God. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really good music writing because it's political and it's calling out something that's, that was and still is a huge issue. Yeah where there's a lot of homophobia still in the music business mm. and it's there's something particularly sickening about it because of the debt that is owed to gay culture in terms of what is cool and what is hip and what is good. Absolutely. I mean, I don't remember reading this piece at the time, but I mean, I applaud the late, great Stephen Wells for writing this because we're sitting here today and, you know, you and I can say to each other, there's just nothing cool or funny or anything about homophobia. No. It's vile, like any prejudice, anything that, that makes a judgment about somebody before they've even opened their mouth. And I do remember that it was problematic for, he says, white liberals. One might say, you know, white music critics yeah. felt that, that somehow they couldn't criticise rap or hip-hop artists for just the most outrageous homophobia yeah. because somehow you have to sort of take it on its own terms. Or or what? Or you're being racist, you I know? know. I so that it, it's a complicated cultural cluster of problems. To be sure, to be sure. But I think it's important that you don't give people a free pass to say whatever the fuck they want just because mm. you can understand where that kind of homophobia comes from and the situations that give rise to it, but that doesn't mean that it's suddenly acceptable or that it should be sort of supported and applauded. And the thing is, it wasn't like it was just black rappers being homophobic. Mm. I mean, Mm. Eminem, notoriously homophobic for ages and ages, Mm. and there was a sort of sense that oh well he's just he's just being a sort of bad boy and that's it's a sort of image swaggering. I don't I don't really care that the fact is that it was it foments hate yeah absolutely absolutely it foments hate and you know i mean in this connect i mean i'm thinking laterally here but i you know read tim jones's piece in the guardian today about morrissey and it's you know it just does raise this this big issue about well you know can you enjoy or admire music by someone when you know that they are promulgating Ugh, prejudice yeah. and, and, and this hatred. This is a big topic. This is a huge topic. And I I think it's a complicated thing because, you know, it extends out into the whole argument that, well, you know, X was a sort of dreadful anti-Semite, but, but you know, 50 years ago wrote this extraordinary symphony. Do we say that? I mean, Wagner. I mean, can we not listen to Wagner anymore? I mean, it, it's such a complicated thing. I think each individual has to make the call for themselves. Absolutely. You know, do, can you still listen to the Smiths? Of course you can still listen to the Smiths, in my view. But it's difficult to listen to the Smiths knowing what we now know about Morris's far-right politics. Yeah, for sure it's difficult. And there's a sort of twofold thing. There's the one side of it, which is the personal, I don't feel comfortable listening to X, Y, or Z because mm. oh, I know that there were these views that either were being espoused at the time or are being espoused now by whoever made this music or music film art, whatever it is, this is a, this is a difficult thing. Can bad people make good art? It's that sort of question. I think it's probably yes. It's a, it's a really, and the other side of it is you can make that personal decision not to listen to it for you. There's also, should we be supporting them in terms of 
buying their records and giving them slots on Saturday Night Live. And I think... Well, especially the answer, if they're still alive, right? Right, especially if they're still alive, that becomes a, a tricky one. And I think the answer to that, in a way, the answer is easier for that side of it because it's. I think there is an argument to say, well, no, we, mm. we shouldn't really be mm. supporting them because that support allows them to carry on spouting rubbish. You can draw Fortunately, that Morris's new album has... And might, it might, in any case, have garnered across-the-board negative reviews. You know, I did see the one star in the review last week and sort of think, well, you know, would it have been two or three stars if there wasn't, you know, a kind of general well, detestation of... of my of feeling is that probably yes, from. but yeah. regardless. I mean, this is a huge, huge, huge topic, and I, it's not one that I'm sure how I feel about overall but it's an ongoing and I think it will become a more and more prominent topic that gets discussed as we have revelation after revelation of people's shoddy behaviour basically. Well and especially Jasper at a time like right now when you know the lids have come off every jar of hate everybody now, I mean everybody people feel entitled and emboldened to say the most disgusting things now on social media, <sighs> on in media generally, it just it seems like now there's just no sort of decency or sensitivity anymore. Everybody's angry, and people like Morrissey aren't helping. No, no, they're definitely not. <laughs> when helping. Morrissey wears a Four Britain badge oh, for on Jimmy so, Fallon's really show, just, you know, I'm it, surprised it's, that it's, it's Jimmy a, Fallon. It's a dog whistle. I'm it's, surprised that the producers on that show didn't say, "Look, they probably didn't know." I yeah, that's, would that's, have seen the, the that's the problem. Known. That's the problem, isn't it? Mm. But yeah, it's 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 a bit of a kick in the teeth, really. I do wish more musicians would, you know. Of course, it would just be castigated as sort of woolly left liberal consensus or conspiracy. But I just I wish more musicians right now would band together, put on events to say something about yeah. the, the, the creeping tide of fascistic behaviour and discourse, you know. I think I, I just sort of feel like, where, where are the musical voices? It's like mm. people just have almost feel like, oh, what's the point? It's so obvious that if I get up and sing a song that attacks all that, I'm just, it's like, who cares? Yeah. And I think that's dangerous. Yeah, I think it is dangerous. I think it is dangerous. You know, of course there are people like Billy Bragg who will who will never tire of you know, they will always be up there on a soapbox. <laughs> but you would you would sort of hope that there was a little bit more banding together of yeah. everyone from like, you know, Bruce Springsteen to, you know, I mean the closest the closest the closest you get to that is is people like refusing to play at Trump's inauguration and that sort of thing. But but I don't think that's as much banding together as it is just kind of not. I also think there's an element of like, what's the point in writing a song about Trump? I mean, you know, it's sort of obvious to anyone with a shred of decency or heart or sensitivity that Trump is monstrous. So what's the point in even saying that? It's like, Yeah. yeah, and I don't know. Yeah. Have we got is that the point we've got to in the culture? I don't know. I think people are writing music about. I mean, there's this album that came out about the amendments to the U.S. Constitution, which right. it's a compilation album by a whole lot of different artists, and, okay. and that's that's a sort of statement. It's a it's a political album by 27 different okay, yeah. musicians. Well, I didn't together. know about it. So all that, sorts of people kind involved of tells in that. you its reach, perhaps. Yeah, uh, hasn't. But I think people people problem. are saying that kind of thing. I think that as far as like the uber mainstream pop musicians they maybe feel i mean like it took ages for for taylor swift to say anything 
negative about yeah, for sure. anyone. And of course, in, in the you, don't wanna, you don't want to alienate your fan base, man. It's well, like, and well, of course, and con- you know, I mean, this is where it does become. You really do have to be quite bold and quite brave, especially in, in a, a genre like country music, where very, very few country artists have said anything. When you consider what the Dixie Chicks, you know, when they stood up to Bush. Where are the artists who, you know, they don't want to alienate their fan base. It's very, very apparent. And it's very unfortunate as well, because you think that maybe if people who have an audience of that kind, they might be able to speak to the fan base that they would alienate in a way that would not alienate them, but would perhaps help a little bit change some opinions and some views on that sort of thing. If well, of course, Willie Nelson, who's got nothing left to lose, you know, he's he's you know he's at the end of his life, at the end of his career, and good for him. But, um, yeah. he, he's not he's not out there colluding with the Trump nightmare. And there are I mean, Casey Musgraves, there are there are younger artists who've, who've who've taken some kind of a stand. Anyway, as you yeah, say, I mean, it's a we massive. Could go, we could go on about this for for hours and hours. So I shall think we? we probably <laughs> shall we? <laughs> yes, this five hour <laughs> episode. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, you should have been here to, to stop us. But. Well, there's an interesting thing, actually, that ties in from, from a t- mm. the, another piece that Mark picked, which is a Tony Bennett interview with David Stubbs right. in the enemy in 1998, where Tony Bennett says, thing is, in America, when you have liberal politics, you're sometimes regarded as some sort of communist. And I think, you know, that's a, that's a fair point that, that, that Tony Bennett makes there, mm. really, that it, it is, particularly in America, difficult to to be well you don't need the c word anymore do you i mean liberal is now a dirty yeah, word yeah absolutely it's true it's true um, it's 100% true. you know so forget communism that's where we've got to i, I just want to back up to the previous piece that mark quoted it says oasis review by the ever amazing simon price from october funny. 97 so oasis earl's court <laughs> i just love this after magic pie a smug chugging sludge that would appall mccartney there's an awkward lull don't we deserve some applause asks noel clap 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 go twenty thousand dutiful sea lion flippers there's lager everywhere but no one's smiling tick tock Fabulous. Oof. Oof. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, so by 97, you know, Oasis have already sort of settled into this uh, kind of very wild. predictable kind of dad rock riffology. I mean, I saw them at Earl's Court in, I guess it must have been 95, and actually, well, I loathed Oasis. I thought they were Don't tell me they were good. Life. Oh, no. Well, they were quite good. They were quite powerful. Okay. I, and it would be dishonest of me to, to say otherwise. It didn't make me like their tired retreads of sort of Beatlesque mm. rock uh, any more than I already did. So I don't know whether by 97 it would, they were any better or worse live, but I, I love it's the way great, Simon yeah. Price... Just absolutely I mean, tears them a new one. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just thought they were the ultimate sort of reduction of rock to lazy cliche, I think, you know. I still can't take them seriously and uh, nor do I like and they're Noel's not particularly great bad. no people either so <laughs> no there's something just the way they've behaved and the sort yep. of fratricidal loathing between these two brothers is it's not inspiring is it let's be honest let's be um, real you mentioned Tony Bennett I just there was another quote that Mark picked out where he says if you look at my repertoire I'm trying to make people feel good not that Sinatra didn't 
but those lonely bluesy songs he did I never did and I thought uh, I saw that and I thought oh yeah so that's why I never really loved Tony <laughs> Bennett that much I can admire Tony yeah. Bennett but to me if I'm on a desert island I've got a kind of case full of Sinatra Sinatra albums. and I probably haven't got very much you can't, you Tony can, yeah Bennett. you can't really you know drown in your tears to Tony Bennett doesn't really you work you can't can you no, but I did like he did a, he did a couple of duet albums with all sorts of people, including Amy Winehouse, including Amy Winehouse, Lady Gaga, Willie Nelson, aforementioned. Yep. You know, so he's certainly an interesting performer and musician, and did some cool stuff, even if it's maybe doesn't have that rawer side. Yeah, it. he's technically a great singer. No doubt he's a great jazz artist, oh, jazz sure. vocal artist. But does he move me to tears? like Sinatra did on his great capital albums in the 50s, he doesn't come close. I mean, I, those Sinatra ballads, there's the great saloon songs, if you like, yeah. whether it's one for my baby or where do you go or I'm a fool to want you because devastating. I mean, I, I think that's the greatest ballad singing that I know, yeah. really. Sure, yeah. I think Male a- ballad singing. Yeah. I mean, I just don't... The voice is so... Rich, it's so deep and cavernous, and you just, it just breaks your heart. It's so, there's a vulnerability there. There's a sort of male vulnerability that, that is rare. It's yeah, rare for sure. in, in any genre of music. No doubt, no doubt. Um, but then, is it a bit unfair? I mean, Tony Bennett is, is basically saying he didn't want to do that, doesn't do that. Complete. So, it's, it's, it's kind of his prerogative to say. He's not a lonely, bluesy guy. No, he's not. And, and he's a funk Sinatra you know, he's fun. was a quite a tormented soul. In Tony his Bennett way. seems, I mean, you know, there's a lovely, lovely clip of, of singing a duet with Lady Gaga where they're just having a fabulous time. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, that's to Tony Bennett's credit, really, that he, he knows how to have, a, have fun. Yeah. She gets too hungry for dinner at eight. I'm starving. She loves the theater, but she never comes late. I never bother with people that I hate. That's why this chick is a tramp. <laughs> she doesn't like. Couple more pieces that, that I picked out from the last 20 years or so. First of which I wanted to talk about. It's about Niles Barkley. It's an interview with the two of them. Of course, Niles Barkley, although at the time it was kind of obscured slightly as is it one guy or what is it, but it was a collaboration between Danger Mouse and CeeLo Green. And it's an interview with them with Angus Beatty and Mojo in 2006. And so this is right when Crazy had been a massive, massive hit. You know, it's a huge track that year. And it's full of interesting tidbits, like the fact that the song that Danger Mouse produced, which kind of launched him a little bit after... Well, of course, Danger Mouse got known after he did the Grey album, which was a remix of Jay-Z and the Beatles' black and white albums. But then he produced Dare with Gorillaz, and that was knocked off its chart summit position by the Pussycat Dolls' Don'tcha, which I think is a great little snippet of 2006 pop history. But also, CeeLo Green is talking in this. Of course, CeeLo Green went off the rails a bit lately. Uh, You know, he was accused of sexual battery and slipping someone ecstasy and was convicted of just the latter thing. Managed to get away with only three years probation. I actually saw him live, like, around that time in 2014, and he it wasn't good. He was a mess. He was really on stage at a festival, and he just kind of came on, and he was clearly not in the best frame of mind and it's a shame because there are a couple of his tracks like Crazy is just phenomenal I love he's that he's a great person. singer isn't and he? I mean, he's got he's a great voice and this sort of almost gospelish yeah. kind of voice that, that works so well with, with Danger Mouse's 
very unique very kind unique of production sound world absolutely soundscape. and they're, they're, they're interesting in this interview about not you know at this point the Niles Barkley persona shtick has run a bit thin but they they talk interestingly about like why they wanted to make that record and yeah. what what kind of went into it and one thing most people I think don't know is that Crazy as a, as a song was I mean heavily inspired by film scores of spaghetti westerns mm. Morricone and so on mm. but actually more specifically it samples the soundtrack to the spaghetti western Django Prepare a Coffin the soundtrack of which by people that you've never heard of probably Gian Piero Reverberi and Gianfranco Reverberi you're um, absolutely right never heard of them never heard of them and you haven't heard the song until I played it earlier no. but it is a great bit of Spaghetti Western soundtrack yes. I, have, I have a soft spot for Spaghetti Westerns oh, and their too. soundtracks they're just Absolutely. brilliant and Crazy not only samples that song but utilises parts of the main melody and the chord structure and everything and so they're actually co-credited as songwriters on Crazy and it's just it's a really fun thing to hear and go Holy shit, it is that. It's exactly crazy, but as a spaghetti... It's, I think it's a fun little fact about that. I remember when... I remember, I remember when I lost my... They were really, really interesting. And Crazy was just, just one of those the great kind just, of pop I think, singles. I think one of the great of, great singles of, of that yeah, decade, basically. Yeah, definitely, definitely, oh. definitely. It was everywhere, wasn't it? And the last piece I've picked out is Christine and the Queens. Kate Mossman goes to see her live, and it's got a lovely title, Why Christine and the Queens Makes Me Feel Like I'm Ten Years Old and Climbing a Tree. Uh, <laughs> and this is, this is from last year in The yeah. New Statesman. I think it's a really lovely piece. It's a, it's a great live review. It gets across the sense that it was a really fun gig to be at, but also talks interestingly in light of... Because Christine and the Queens is an alter ego of... Eloise. Eloise Letizier. I practised that earlier. And <laughs> she's pansexual and yeah. genderqueer, and, and then for the second album, further development of an alter ego just became Chris as an alter ego. So Kate Mossman is really interesting about that as a thing and, and how that is reflected in her live performance she says I'm sure I'm not the only woman in the audience for whom Letizia stirs up a very strong half forgotten feeling of wanting to be a boy dolls were thrown out of my pushchair when I was small I said they were slimy I never owned a dress for my fourth birthday someone no one can remember who bought me a sword a helmet and shield in bronze plastic my first love <laughs> Freddie and I met at nursery we planned to get married and become builders <laughs> It's, a, it's a lovely piece of writing. B, I think it speaks to something very interesting yeah. in contemporary, you know, it ties in exactly with what... Contemporary what identity. Bush, yeah, you know, identity exactly. in general yeah. ties in exactly with what Kate Bush well, quite. was saying in... Absolutely. That interview that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Great piece, well worth a read. You know, I want to go see Christine and the Queens after that yeah. review. I um, love her. I mean, I do think... I just think it's brilliant. I mean, it's Extra- really, 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 really great um, A kind of new kind of pop icon. I think the music is fabulous. Melodically, lyrically. And she's Haven't very, seen her live. I would love to see... She seems, she's, she's very yeah. iconoclastic yeah. And, and very much, you know, just herself, which is really Absolutely. refreshing and fun. And, and just truly liberating. I do think she's she's been part of a kind of process of liberation for... For sure. For, particularly for, for sure. young female pop fans, you know. Yeah, terrific. Great. Well, 
Kate's always great on, yeah. on on music in the New Statesman and elsewhere. So I think that brings us to a close, doesn't it, Jasper? And, I think it um, does. We're, we're going to just go out really with another snippet of the audio from Rory Gallagher where he's talking about the great and quite scary Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Well, let's roll that clip and uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Mark will be back next week and I believe we have a very special guest, the 60s pop writer par excellence, Dawn James, that Mark is often talking about. A real living legend of pop journalism. Please join us next week. We'll see you then. I can't wait for Mark to fanboy about Dawn James in person. It's going to be great. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. me, he is the rock and roll artist. He is vocally, instrumentally, even the country stuff. It's just he's, when you watch Jerry Lee Lewis, you know something's going on. I mean, he's more dangerous than the Sex Pistols. I mean, right down the line. Anything could happen. He could pull a pistol out and shoot someone in the audience. I mean, and I mean, that in, in, and even this, in the studio, when I, when I did the sessions, he was, um, he, came, he came in with a, a red a real um, Sears Roebuck type uh, sweatshirt, uh, red pants, white socks, and like white patent shoes. And Kenny Jones came in to play drums, and Kenny came in also dressed like a peacock, you know, with a tartan this and a tartan that. And Jerry Lee didn't like it. He says, "Boy, you're going to have to go. You've you got two showmen in here, you know." And he was explaining to us how he could get away with so much drinking. He used to drink, he said, a quarter milk after he got drunk at night, and a quarter milk in the morning. And that's why he looked fine. But he lifted, I swear to God, he lifted a Steinway up in the studio to, to show us what he meant about some show. I mean, he was... So it's, 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 it's as genuine as, as, as... It's not like a 9 to 5 thing with him. That was Rory Gallagher in conversation with Cliff White in 1978, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The host was Barney Hoskins, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. That's why lady is a Beautiful.